on the screen. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, starting in verse 21. This is God's Word. And He said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And He said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your word. And we would ask, God, that you would use it to equip us to do work of ministry. That your glory might spread through the earth as the water covers the sea. And God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will darkness have the last word? Will darkness get the final say? It's easy to find evidence that seems to affirm that statement. To answer yes to that question. You look around in the world and it's a place that's full of turmoil. And you don't have to look far. It's full of Darkness, brokenness, pain, sin, crime, disease, poverty, need. You don't have to look at the world to want to answer yes to will darkness win. You can look within. Knowing the sin within us, we could say, yeah, sometimes it feels as if darkness is going to win. And it's going to have the final say because we know our own hearts. And if that's not enough... You could add to that death. This stark reality that seems to speak with finality that darkness does have the last word. That it gets the final say. Even those who trust in God can slip into times of doubt and despair thinking that that darkness does get the final word. Thinking, where is this kingdom of God? There's a lot of sowing that we just learned about. And a lot of those soils don't produce anything. Does darkness have the last word? Jesus steps onto the scene in the Gospel of Mark and he says that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near in me. And into this question of does darkness have the final say, Jesus tells us a parable about light and how light is meant to shine. He tells us something about the nature of the kingdom of God so that we would have an answer to that question if if darkness has the last word. You see, the secret of the kingdom of God is concealed to some and revealed to others. To the hard-hearted folks who reject Jesus and the gospel of Mark so far, who don't hear his words, who aren't open to him, the secret of the kingdom of God that is found in Jesus being the Son of God, it's concealed to them. They push further back away from him. But there's a small band of those who have heard him. And those who hear him rightly, who love him and follow him, he he begins to more and more uncover and reveal the secret of the kingdom of God, who he is and what he came to do. But there is a secret. There is a mystery to this kingdom of God. Exactly who Jesus is and his purpose at this point in the Gospels, Mark, is what we could say veiled, somewhat hidden, not easily seen and displayed. You see, Jesus heals publicly. But he also silenced the demons who rightly identify him as the son of the Most High. And that seems strange. 
Why would he do that? He doesn't take on this title, Son of God, which would have had all sorts of good implications, right? At least we think he's this Messiah-like figure who's going to come and reign over our enemies. He uses another title more often, Son of Man, much more obscure. He teaches publicly, but after chapter 3, where if you remember chapter 3, he's coming on the end of five disputes, then he's rejected by, by the scribes and the Pharisees and his own family. After chapter 3, in a, a murder plot, he begins using parables a lot. A little bit more obscure, hidden. He tells his disciples that the parables conceal the secret of the kingdom of God to some, but to others he reveals. And he starts with this parable of the sower. And the word is sown in a field of rejection. Where there's only a harvest mysteriously beginning to grow in one of the soils. Jesus then explains the parable to his disciples, giving them, just a few of them, the secret of the kingdom of God. So it seems like up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus and the kingdom of God are veiled. They're obscure. Which seems as if it's an odd strategy. Like if you come as the Son of God and you're proclaiming the kingdom of God, I tell you what my strategy would be. Like, let's show that kingdom authority. Let's display it. Let's shout it from the mountains. Jesus does something different. It's veiled. But he assures us that it won't always be this way. Verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? We get the metaphor that he's using here. When, When Ralphie's father in a Christmas story wins a major award, this lamp, this famous lamp, he knows the place for it. It's not in the back of the house in the kitchen. It's not in the basement where he goes to fix fuses. No, it's in the front, right in the middle of the window so that everybody from the street can see this lamp. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, there'll be a 24-hour showing of this video on Christmas Day. Just check it out on TBS. A lamp, Mark says, or Jesus says, isn't to be put under a basket or a bed, is it? Oh, William Tyndale kind of famously translated this in Matthew, so not to be put under a bushel, right? That doesn't make any sense. You don't have a lamp that you put under a basket or under a bed. You put it on a stand so it can give light to the room. You put it in the front so everybody can see it in the house and outside the house if you want them to. You, you display it. Now, what the English translation does here is it smooths out some of the awkwardness in the original language but it also, in smoothing it out, it, it might obscure some important details that help us with what Jesus is getting at here in verse 21. You see, when we read verse 21, the, the subject is the lamp. And it's interesting that lamps are objects, right? They, are, they need to be acted upon. This lamp acts. It is not brought in. This lamp comes in. A little bit different. Normally, you'd have to bring a lamp in. This lamp comes. Not only that, this lamp is not just a lamp. In the original language, it is the lamp. It has a definite article. Now, not always when you have a definite article do you have to say the. Oftentimes, it's not. Context will tell you. But I think the context is pointing to us translating it and saying that this lamp that is acting, that this lamp comes. And it is not just a lamp that comes. It is the lamp that comes. I think that the image that Jesus is getting at with the lamp is is pointing to himself. That he is the lamp who didn't come to be hidden, but to light up the world. The concealment of Jesus and his kingdom, in other words, I think he's getting at, won't last. It won't remain that way. 
It wasn't meant to be that way. The, the, the light comes into the world, and it's not meant to be hidden and put under a bed or under a bushel. It's meant to be displayed. It's meant to give light. It's meant to be broadcast all over the place. In other words, we need to know that this lamp is going to be broad and bring light to all sorts of places. One commentator says it this way, that as Jesus cannot be conformed, as we heard in Mark before, to old garments and wineskins, neither can he be placed under a bowl or a bed. In other words, Jesus' purpose is to shine forth to all, that the concealment, that the hidden nature, that the obscure nature of Jesus and his kingdom won't always remain that way. Soon it will be clear. It will not be veiled anymore. He will shine forth to all. The veil and the hiddenness won't last. He says in verse 22, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. And while Jesus' earthly ministry is happening, there's, there's some aspects of his person and his ministry that are veiled, that are hidden, that are, that are a little bit obscure, some aspects to all that he's doing. And I think that it has to be this way. If God were to come to his sinful, broken creation in full light of the fullness of his glory, it would be devastation. So he couldn't come that way. Sinful man couldn't handle it. You might remember the story of Moses. He wants to see God's glory. God says, okay, we're going to hide you in a cave. I'm going to put you behind a rock. I'm going to cover you up. And only then will we be able to see the very backside of it. Remember Isaiah when he sees this vision of the Lord seated on his throne. The seraphim who were created by God to be in the very presence of God are covering their faces and their feet. And they're shouting in a way that rumbles the entire place. Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah takes all this in and he says, I am undone. That's a little taste of if the full light were to blast on sinful humanity, would happen to us. Revelation, we see the Lamb of God come in His fullness, in His glory. And what do people do when they see and they know Him rightly for who He is? Some people who are not reconciled to Him call for mountains to crush them, lest they have to face Him. That's full light. Jesus and the kingdom of God come somewhat veiled and obscure. And I think that what that does is it's graciously giving us as sinful people space to know him. Space to have faith in him. To respond rightly to him. It provides the context for knowing God and it's veiled enough so that we can know him fully. In other words, nothing gets cut off in his purpose and his mission yet before we see the cross and the resurrection. It has to be this way. There's already a murder plot about him, and he has to disarm, in a sense, with parables so that he doesn't get murdered before the time, so that everybody would know him as the Son of God rightly through his death and resurrection. But as a lamp is made to be put on a stand, so Jesus and his kingdom are made to be revealed and to give light and that's what Jesus is getting at. The, the lamp is going to be put on a stand. One author says it this way, that the period of hiddenness is merely a prelude to the period of manifestation when apparent obscurity and weakness will be exchanged for messianic glory and power. I love how Mark strategically places this parable, this short little parable, in the context that he's placed it in. Chapter 2 and 3, the end of that, there were five disputes in a row. Then Jesus is rejected from those who are close to him, his own family. He's rejected by the scribes and the Pharisees, those a little bit further away from him. Then he tells this parable of a sower. And there's all sorts of obstacles to fruitful seed. There's the obstacle of a bird coming and swooping up, like Satan's an obstacle. There's the cares of this world. There's trials and tribulation. All these obstacles to fruitful seed. 
And after that, Jesus breathes hope, I think, with this little parable to his followers who are living in the obscurity and the hiddenness of Jesus and his kingdom. He he gives them the hope that soon that hiddenness is going to be exchanged, that soon the light is going to be put on a stand. Now, as disciples who are following Jesus, there, there was going to be much that was obscure. They had a lot of questions. They should have had a lot of questions. It didn't seem to add up. It was veiled. It wasn't fully known. But they can take hope that the one that they follow, that the lamp, is going to bring to light what needs to be brought to light. And that he'll do it in his time, and then he's good in that. Perhaps this short parable for Jesus' original followers would have hit home most after his resurrection. Because Jesus was hidden in a tomb. Death and darkness covered over him. And it probably seemed as if to them like all was lost, like their world was flipped upside down. Like we gave three lives, three years of our lives, hoping that this was the one, and now he's in a grave. Until what was hidden was made manifest, was uncovered, and a light began to shine through the darkness. You see, in his resurrection, the hiddenness was exchanged for a period, an everlasting period of messianic glory. The light was revealed as the glorious Son of God who conquered death and rose to reign forevermore. And what did Jesus' followers do with this reality? It's there where we find maybe a more lining up, Mark lining up with what we normally think about when we think about the light and shining light. What did Jesus' followers do with what was revealed? What did they do with the light of the Son of God and knowing Him through His death and resurrection? They turned the world upside down. They started proclaiming the gospel to all the nations, teaching them all that Jesus had commanded them. They let their light shine before others so that others would see their good deeds, hear their words of good news, and would glorify their God. They were then filled with hope, a certainty that Jesus was the Son of God, and they didn't hide it under a bushel. They let it shine. And I think what this parable also does is it gives not only them hope for their ministry when they were walking it out at that time, but also gave them a future hope that not only will things have things come to light, but things will come to light. There's a a future hope here that Jesus gives in this short parable, that we live in this kingdom of God that they can see rightly, but not everybody's going to see this rightly. So the kingdom of God is an already reality, like it's broken into the darkness and brokenness all of this world. But that it's not fully present. Sin hasn't fully been stamped out. Darkness hasn't been fully stamped out. But this parable gives us a future hope. I mean, I I think Mark's original audience would have known the reality of of the kingdom is here, but it's not all the way here. I mean, they would have lived out some of what the faithful saw in Hebrews 11, if you remember that. In Hebrews 11, there were faithful that were closing the mouths of lions, putting foreign enemies to flight. And there were faithful who were being sawn in two. Now Mark wrote, in his original audience, he wrote probably 50s, 60s, somewhere in that range. He likely wrote from Rome, and he primarily wrote to Gentiles. If you know anything about Rome at that time, they were under this emperor whose name was Nero. And he subjected anybody who would follow the name of Christ to harsh persecution. And those who believed in the gospel and knew Jesus as the Son of God needed a future hope. They needed it because while some are being sawn in two, it may not seem to them as if Jesus is the risen Son of God who's going to reign and rule forever. 
They needed a future hope. And when you're losing your friends and they're being beheaded because they're following after Jesus, you're, you're going to need to know that the kingdom of God is near and that one day it will be fully manifest. And here comes this parable. It says, it is going to come to light. All will one day see what Stephen saw in Acts chapter 7 when he was being stoned. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And I think that kind of hope is the same kind of hope that it can breathe into us. If, verse 23, we would have ears to hear. Let's hear. Hear it with faith. That the light is on the stand already. That the period of hiddenness is over. Jesus has shown us everything. Jesus is not hidden anymore to us. In his word, we see him. He is risen, not hidden. And the Son of God, he defeated the the power and the penalty of sin to set people free. He didn't come to be put under a basket. He came to dispel of the darkness. And there's hope for those who would have ears to hear because the light dispels the darkness of sin and death. For those who have ears to hear, this news then is to be received with faith. It's to be believed that the Son of God is here, that the kingdom of God is at hand in the person and work of Jesus. And then if it is believed, we should then follow out and do what Mark and the other early disciples did with that realization and that belief. Shine light. Display the brightness of the lamp. Jesus is not hidden to those who believe. They know him as the risen king. They know him as the one who's been crucified and conquered Satan and sin and death. They know him as the light of the world. And that light did not come to be put under a basket or under a bed or in the basement. That light came to shine, to be put on a stand. The song we sing, this little light of mine, the song is right. We are to let it shine. But we need to be careful with that. Everybody can sing that song. Lots of groups, churches and young church kids are not the only ones that sing that song. You could be in almost part any group and you could sing that song and it'd be a rallying cry for your community. Let's let our light shine and our message go for it. Anybody can sing that song. So we need to be careful. We are to let our light shine, but not because we're so bright. Not because we're we're beautiful lamps and we have so much to show, but because we know the lamp and we know how bright that light is. And it's that light, the light that we want to display to the world. It's Jesus that shines. We're just to be the ones that are trying to cast the light as far and as wide as we possibly can. We are to let our light shine and that we're letting Jesus shine so much that he comes all the way through us, through our weaknesses, through our sins, through all of us, he shines through brightly. We are to let that light shine in every direction that we can. If it's just our little light within us that's supposed to shine, then guess what? My guess is that a bushel is going to snuff that light out. Satan is going to blow it out. But what's hopeful about this parable is that if Jesus is the lamp, if he's the light, then we know him as the one who has all authority. We know him as the risen son of God. That light can't go out. And because we know him as one who has all authority and the light, the lamp that cannot go out, then and therefore we go and we make disciples of all nations, spreading that light as far and as wide as we possibly can because we know the lamp. We shine that light by declaring the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand in the person and work of Jesus. 
We declare that people can have life with God because of what Jesus has done. And we demonstrate it with our lives that we're not living for the things of the earth. We live because we know our risen Savior and we live for Him. We can display that in how we live our lives. And in context, I think here's what's helpful here is that we just got off this parable of a sower and now we're in this parable about a lamp and a home. Like we display the light and declare it and demonstrate it in radically ordinary ways. You don't have to go on a mountaintop to shine the light. You can do it in your bedroom and in your living room and at your work, anywhere, everywhere, in radically ordinary ways. Normal sewing, normal turning on the light in the living room, everyday things, talking to your coworker, opening up your Bible with your family. Like ordinary things shine light that show that we treasure Jesus above all things because we know him as the light of the world. We go knowing that seeds that we cast out, a lot of it's going to fall in different soils. There's a lot of obstacles out there. Some is going to get swooped up, some is going to be choked out, some is going to have no root. We go sowing with hope, though, because we know the lamp. And at times it can seem like there's no fruit. There's going to be times when it seems like darkness is getting the final word. Like evil and wickedness gets the final say. Because there I sowed a seed and it seemed like it was so good and then it got choked out. Or there we sowed the seed and it seemed like there was so much depth there, but then persecution came and it was gone. Or there I sowed the word and it seemed like it wasn't even heard. There's a lot of soils like that. There's going to be times in our lives when we feel like that. But we also go with hope knowing that the light will shine. Nothing is hidden except which will be made manifest. We are to keep sowing and shining light in hope because we know Jesus, because we know him. He is unhidden to us. We know him as the one who has all authority and he has commanded us to go. And he has told us there will be fruit. Darkness will not have the final word. All will come to know one day that there is one light of the world. And then all those who have been trusting in him will know that it's all been worth it. Even sowing in hard soils, even shining light in really dark places, because we know the light, all of that will be worth it. We have hope in the future that all are going to see, as Stephen saw, Jesus at God's right hand. And because that's true, we shine right now. And Jesus says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear. So Jesus tells these parables in order that we would hear with faith. That the veil would be removed. That we would be introduced and know the light of the world. And that he would dispel sin and darkness in our own lives. That we would know him, as Mark wants us to know him, as the Son of God. And so Mark has weaved this parable beautifully together with with everything that surrounds it. He even smashes this one up, connects it closely with another short parable here. The parable of, we could say, the measure, which mirrors almost identically in form the parable of the lamp in verse 21 and 22. So the parable of the lamp, it it gives hope. It shows that the future is bright. It shows that truth is meant to be on display and known. And this parable, I think, of the measure adds weight to our hearing of that. Verse 24 And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added. 
For to the one who has, more will be given, and to, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. You might have noticed in the last couple of weeks that Jesus is constantly encouraging people to hear. Pay attention closely to what I'm saying to you. In, verse, in chapter 4, verse 9, he does it. In, chapter, or in verse 14 through 20, he says it four times, here, here, here. Verse 24, he adds some more weight to it by saying, listen well. 23, he just said, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. In verse 24, he says, you better be paying attention. Listen well to what you hear. There's some weight to what he's saying. He's, he's commanding, he's calling for this response with, to listen to it with urgency. The weight and the urgency, they, they go up a notch when he says, the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now that ramps up the intensity of how you hear. Because how you hear and what you do with that is going to matter. It's going to be measured back to you in some sense. Now let's think of the context as we think about what, what are we to do with this measure and how it's going to be measured back to us. We're, we're in the context of, of sowing seed, broadcasting seed, getting it out there, sowing, of a lamp being put on the stand so that light would, would get out, of what's being hidden kind of being revealed for all to see. And then over and over again in this context, Jesus is saying, hear, 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 to those with ears to hear, you need to hear, you need to listen. I think that leads us into thinking that the, the one who hears well, who, who has understanding, who rightly acknowledges what Jesus is saying and that the secret is found in Jesus being the Son of God, the King of the kingdom, and it being present in Him, are giving something in the secret of the kingdom of God that also is to be measured out from them. They have much gain in that they know Jesus rightly. They have much measure to them, that it's been revealed to them. They have salvation in this life, in Jesus' name. They have life in the kingdom of God. As Jesus looks around and says, those who do my will are part of my family. They have that. If you believe, if you hear these words well, you have all that measured to you. It's given to you. It's revealed to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. Jesus gave it. And to what has been measured to you, he says, you need to measure that back out. So in other words, what I think is being promised here when he says even more will be added to you, is once you have something measured to you, you need to measure that out. You need to be sowing seed, broadcasting and shining light. And look what's promised to those who do this well. Still more will be added to you. More. More what? I think more light, more Jesus, more understanding, more knowledge of Him, more satisfaction in Him, more joy in Him. There's always more understanding, more satisfaction, closer fellowship. They're all found in faithfulness to Jesus, obedience to what he's called us to. He wants us to sow seeds and shine light, and in that we find more of him, and he's more satisfying to us than he was before. I think the same principle for us is found in Matthew 25, in a parable that Jesus tells that mirrors some of what he just said here. Matthew uses it for different reasons than Mark. But the outcome is the same. If you look in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, this is the parable of the talents. Jesus says in this parable, It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. 
Now, after a long time, the master of those servants, he came and he settled accounts with them. He's measuring it back out. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents here. I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him. And give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast a worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now in this parable, what's, what's given is a gift from a gracious master doesn't leave and say, well, these servants can't handle this. He leaves and he gives them something graciously to his servants. He entrusts it to them, something valuable. He entrusts to these servants. In other words, this master is, is a gracious giver. And we see later, he's a generous rewarder. He rewards those who serve him faithfully, but he's also a stern judge. It's a picture of our God. He's gracious, he's generous, but he's also judge. And we hold all these things together. He's righteous, he's holy. Stewardship was given to these servants. Graciously it was given. Generously it was given. But the response to what he has given matters. The master expected the servants to be faithful stewards of what he'd been given, what they'd been given. They were expected to invest wisely. They were expected to, to do something with what he'd given to them. Responding to what's graciously given matters. Jesus is adding weight to that in verses 24 and 25. How you respond, how you measure it out, that matters. Your response to this light and how you shine it matters. Responding to grace matters. One author says this, that grace never condones irresponsibility. How we respond to grace that has been graciously, generously given matters. What happens to those who measure out what's been measured to them? More's added. I'm gonna, you've been faithful here. I'm going to give you even more. But what happens to the one who doesn't? Even what he has is taken away. The conclusion adds weight to how we respond to what's been given. It matters. There's significance tied to how we hear and what we do with what we hear. And in Matthew 25, 29, the same conclusion is drawn from here, as in Mark, he says, everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Doesn't that sound like Mark 4.25? For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, in the parable of the talents, it's speaking of talents, money, 
Jesus here is he's in the context of the light shining, the, the sower sowing. In other words, this, this is meant to be known. How you hear this and how you get it out and broadcast it matters. So Jesus challenges here. There's a weight to how you hear and how you measure out what you hear. It's a weight to your stewardship of what you've heard and the light that you have and that you know. He challenges us here to think through what you hear carefully. Listen carefully to what you hear. All with ears to hear, listen up is what he says. Because there's a a will be, verse 25 and 24. It will be. There's, There's a future. There's something coming. And that what's coming matters, and it matters, and it should matter to right now. That we know the end should matter and impact how we live right now. How one hears and handles what they hear in the present has future significance. For the one who has, more will be given. And for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And so there's this bright future because we know the lamp. But that future has a finality. And the finality of what Jesus is saying ought to add weight to how we hear. But even that weightiness and that warning that Jesus gives, that, that call to pay careful attention to have a right response, the challenge that he gives in verse 25 is still an, an invitation. He presses in a little bit harder so that they would know that there's some significance attached to it, but he's still inviting to be a part of this kingdom of God, to know him rightly as the lamp. He wants us to know him as the light of the world. That's why he came. Not why he was brought, but why he came. So that we would know him rightly. So that we would know God rightly. So that we would have more even added to us. He wants us to know him as the light of the world. He came for that very reason. He entered into the darkness of this world of sin and death that the light might shine bright and he wants to shine that light in and through us. He wants us, he wants to light up our lives and use us to light up others. So the question he leaves us with is is how are we going to hear? How will we respond? There's a weight to what we do with what we now know. To the Christian, we respond with faith. And we move forward wanting to let our light shine. To those who have never yet believed, we would say, we want you to know the light of the world and to believe in Him. To have faith, to listen well, because there's a will be for all of us. There's a finality. There's a significance. So trust in Jesus. For the Christian, we have a way of responding when we gather together to knowing the light of the world as the Son of God who came and was crucified and risen. We call it the Lord's Supper. It's a meal of remembrance. It's a meal of celebration where we remember that the Son of God came, that He came, and that He is now, not only has He been crucified, but risen so that we can be reconciled to God, and that through Jesus' name, through His life, death, and resurrection, we can be reconciled to God. And for those who are Christians, we are reconciled to God. He is unhidden to us as the risen, risen King. And so if you're a believer, we'd encourage you, come in remembrance of what Jesus has done. Come in celebration of what Jesus has done. Come in faith and tear off a piece of the bread and dip in the juice and be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf to make you a part of the kingdom of God. If you're not a believer, we would say, please, instead of taking this meal, believe in Jesus. Stay in your seat. Maybe even say to another person that you know to be a believer, like, I want to follow Jesus. What does that look like? Help me in this. 
Come find one of the pastors. We'd be happy to talk with you or pray with you. But don't take this meal. This is a meal for believers. Believers, we do this because we believe that Jesus came. That he displayed his light and that we are saying he's the light of the world. He's everything to us. If he goes dark, all goes dark. But we know that he is risen. He won't go dark forever. So we take with confidence knowing that he's going to come again and everything will be revealed in that time. Let's take in hope. Would you pray with me?